Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Osiris. And we are back for episode 47 of season four of Undermine. Welcome back. Thank you for being here. What did you think? We are just going to quit at episode 46. On the previous episode of Undermine, Fish wrapped up their historic fall 97 tour at the Knickerbocker arena or whatever generation next was calling the venue in 97 in bucolic Albany, New York. That's the tour closing run that brought the dude saw a surprise opening set by Jay Willis Pratt and put the exclamation point or mark on the fish destroys America tour. And then fish went home for the holidays. And so did we, but the eggnog has finally worn off and we're ready to time travel with you again to Fish 1997. I'm Tom Marshall. This is Undermine. And joining me for the remainder of this revised season will be both of my Undermine co-hosts, RJB and Benji Eisen. Hi, guys. Hi, Tom. Hello. Hi, RJ. You know, I am, uh, I for one, I should say, am glad that we have this video component on YouTube because, I mean, I just, I think during the holidays, I forgot what you guys looked like. That's actually okay. <laughs> Well, RJ looks like he's aged a year. Uh, something about having kids? Uh, yeah. And, and a full-time job. Thank you both so much for the compliments. We're going <laughs> to we're gonna just... I thought we would just sit around and talk about old times. But speaking of old times, Tom, you mentioned that we left off at 12, 13, 97 in Albany. And now we're doing these four 
New Year's Eve run shows in a row. Four days, four episodes. So you might be asking, what about the island tour? And many people say that 97 ended at the island tour, which is not true. But we are going to also bring you island tour episodes right after Fish finishes their spring tour. So this is very simple. December 97 into spring 22 into island tour 2098. That's actually spring 23. This is a segue filled episode. So, all right, we're going to do these four episodes. You're going to listen to new fish and then we're going to bring you the Island tour episodes. So Tom, you were, you were saying about the old days. Uh, yes. Uh, the glory days and how they could pass you by. Well, I suppose some of you will say that the four consecutive nights that made up fish's new year's run in 1997 were indeed glory days. And everyone else. <laughs> well, they clearly weren't there. You were there. I know Benji. And I was there, I think. Um, RJ, where were you? Well, I was, I was, I guess, you know, I have no idea, but I was not there. <laughs> I think I was in Ohio probably, um, which is this actually missing these four shows is probably my biggest fish regret. Cause I was, I was a freshman in college and I probably went home for the holidays to Ohio, to Toledo. And like, why, why wouldn't I just go to these shows? Cause I did go to the Island tour and I should have just maybe stayed on fish tour, you know, until it was no longer possible. But yeah, in, in retrospect, what's in Toledo, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's what that's what everyone's saying. Um, <laughs> so 12, 20, 97, I remember getting these tapes and I I was excited because of the way that the the fall tour went. I mean, everyone was so fired up about this, but I wasn't there. So I have to ask you first, Benji, what's the first thing you think of when you look back at 12, 28, 97? Well, you know, RJ, um, First of all, let me just say, and let me riff here for a second, because it's not like we have any music to talk about or anything like that in this half hour. So let me just say that uh, I'm excited we're doing these two these two four-night runs, because like you just said, they really are kind of, I mean, first of all, the two night, four-night runs I, I've always seen as being together. I see them as two different chapters, uh, you know, in, in one story, and it's probably the end of 97, like you said. And it almost made sense that the Island Tour was in April, and then they do a New Year's Eve show or, and run in april all these years later so maybe for fish the calendar just starts you know and, and time turns elastic or, or whatever there's something about april uh where we can place it with the previous year but these four shows at the time and i remember leaving new york i remember leaving penn station on the, on the last night after new year's eve and thinking that it was the greatest four night four consecutive nights of fish none of them were the, the greatest fish show Combined, the four of them, it was the, the the best four night run of fish up at that point. And then the Island Tour came and the Island Tour is the greatest four night run of fish. So you have these eight shows in which they each were monumental for kind of breaking the record, you know, again and then again. And so uh, I love that. And I love, too, how it kind of puts the exclamation mark on 97. That said, when I think about this show that we're talking about down in Maryland, 1228, the first thing that comes to my mind, obviously, is the Disco Biscuits. <laughs> it's, uh, the reason that I say that is because uh, when I got there, when I pulled into the parking lot, I saw Aaron Madner and Mark Brownstein Brownie, who's on this program uh, this season earlier, um, They and they're in the, the Disco Biscuits. They were handing out flyers for their own show in the parking lot, and you know, which left an impression on me. And they were playing um, some club that was in College Park after Fish, and it was like the club was like 20 minutes away from the venue and then fish played like forever. <laughs> so the after show is a bust, uh, except for those of us who made it there, but that's another story for another podcast. 
like touchdowns all day uh, or something. But anyway, the point is, is that fish went super late, even by fall 97 standards. Uh, in my memory, I, I remember them going past midnight for sure uh, because of the after show. And um, by the numbers, I looked earlier, the show is about three hours and 10 minutes of music. So to put that in context, New Year's Eve, which was just a few nights later, of course, was somehow just 17 minutes longer. And that was a three set show. Um, and then, of course, you have the, the 1230 show where they famously blew past their stop time by an hour. So I think Fish just wanted to play. Yeah, totally. And even going past the midnight hour for three of these four shows wasn't enough. And so they they scheduled the island tour literally just to let them play some more. That's right. Uh, RJ, okay, it's your, it's your turn. Uh, close your eyes. Everyone <laughs> watching on video will attest he's actually closing his eyes. Pretend that we've been talking about, uh, I don't know, ice cream or cereal or something. Cereal. Suddenly... Tom tells you that we are here to discuss 122897. What's the very first thing that comes to your mind? <laughs> the the first thing is getting the tapes and being excited about set two. There's this, I think this whole show is really, we'll get there, but I think it's about this set two banter and like the the weirdness that happens. Um, because the there's something there's some magic in there. And I think like there's it's almost a continuation of the like bring the dude thing, but just like a little more spacey. Like they're um it, it's just it's very weird. And and I remember getting hearing about it maybe on Andy Andy's fish page and then getting the tapes and and just being really excited to listen to it. Do you think that Fish kind of being the band that doesn't have openers and doesn't really have guests anymore or didn't really have a whole lot of guests ever? Um also kind of like was growing out of being stage bantery right right around now. I remember Trey kind of saying to me something about um, the Zappa, shut up and play your guitar, a guy famous for yammering um, and people telling him literally just, would you play your guitar? Like, I I think I'm different. I like I like variety. I, I like, well, maybe I should go to a variety show. Well, <laughs> what is a what is a variety show? But no, seriously, what um what I'm saying is I love it when when fish talks and it seems so few and far between now that they you know right. it do doesn't happen. I couldn't agree with you more, Tom. I love it when when they banter. And what drives me nuts is not when people talk over jams, although that of course is high on my list, but uh but when people talk while Trey is saying something, because I'm always like He's saying something. It might be important. I'm. I feel like all of a sudden I'm, like, I'm that kid in school that's like Shh, the teacher's like. But but the thing is, is that is that his banter in particular. Well, all of their banter. It's so priceless. It's usually uh, the type of thing that you know. It, it's a banter like we would have off mic. You know, like it's just funny and 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 loose, and you really feel like. Trey's just himself up there, you know, like, like he, it, all of them, they're just themselves. And, and so what they say in Mike is not that, you know, granted it's addressing a large audience, but they're so relaxed and, and they're willing to be weird and they're willing to make jokes. And, and even if those jokes don't land, that's kind of my favorite sometimes is when they say something and I think it's funny, but everyone around me is looking really confused. Like, what's this about an utter ball? You know, I, I, uh, I love that stuff and I, I love it when they talk. Me too. It's also I, how you know they're not lip syncing. I, I do think they fall ninety seven. They didn't do a lot of of state banter. I feel like they, there was a party obviously going on, and they they brought that party to the to the stage. But it was it was fairly straightforward in terms of music. 
I wonder if a part of that has to do with, okay, so this is 1997. They've been in arenas for one year at this point. They're still growing at a rapid clip. 1996 was generally, you know, it was the first year in which it was all arenas, right? So they're still just growing into that. And a part of that, I know that, you know, I think maybe a, a size has something to do with it, not just being in an arena because you can banter in a stadium, sure. It just, it's a little bit harder to connect, but Trey in particular does an incredible job of it to this day. An incredible job of if you're in the very last row, you still think he's talking just to you. That being said, um, I know that for the Grateful Dead, there's a point when Jerry Garcia very intentionally decided that he would not say anything from the stage anymore. And the reason being is that he knew that anything he said would be taken as gospel and suddenly it would be on bumper stickers and on T-shirts. And, you know, him just making a joke about about the weather, suddenly people think, oh, the Grateful Dead control the weather. And, and you know, um, mythologies are, are started by some offhanded comment that he, you know, forgot about by the end of the show. And meanwhile, somebody else is getting them printed on on T-shirts, you know, which has to be weird and also frustrating when you say something that you don't necessarily want to be quoted on. And so I, I think there's some of the, I mean, the point being is look at, at the Beacon Jams and suddenly there there were uh, bumper stickers that said spatchcock, you know? So I wonder if a part of it was Trey thinking, well, you know, he, doesn't, he didn't want to see his, his uh, banter being made you know made more than it was made into something more than it was yeah that's interesting yeah i mean this this night the 1228 show was particularly loose in that in that sense and speaking of 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 banter um bruce springsteen's still doing it and he's 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 maybe better than ever but this is not a bruce springsteen podcast <laughs> yet um this I'm is happy the, together with you by the way yeah okay so and this venue Tom, i mean you're you're new jersey's uh favorite songwriter so i mean <laughs> you should be able to join in New Jersey's favorite son. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so, so this venue is called the it was called the Cap Center, and then then US Air Arena. Every big band played in this place. It was blown up in in two thousand two, and you know the Dead the Dead played there a bunch. Speaking of Jerry, and and Fish only played there twice in ninety five and this show in ninety seven. But this uh, this building has some history, and I wonder if that has something to do with kind of the the looseness of it and and there there was a magic in the show unintentional magic i think but benji if we just talk quickly about the first set cool. is there anything in particular it's a, it's a song heavy set but is there anything that kind of sticks out to you um from that first set yes and well it's a uh it's an interesting question rj uh actually it's an interesting answer to what should be a standard question before i talk about the first set let me just say about what you just saying this was the second show there and there must be something in that building because the first show had that free where if you if you recall they kind of messed up in the when they came on stage and and Trey pulled the ripcord and then they went into that free which ended up being in a, a type two jam that was the highlight of the set uh, and I forget the I forget the uh, the the David Steinberg on it I forget the, the the time on it but it was it was a long jam it was a long type two free that came out of that and there's a looseness there but um, this first set you know. The context of this first set is that it was, you know, it was the first time that Fish was on stage since they finished destroying America a few weeks earlier. Many of the people in the building, myself included, Tom, you too, were at those shows as well. So this this was a continuation. But it also kind of felt like the first set of an opening night of of a, a run, you know, because they did have the holidays in between. 
And there was a little bit of just in that short amount of time, there's a little bit, you know, fish was always an operation that required a daily maintenance, if you will, to maintain the level that they that they're at. You know, which is why now they used to rehearse, you know, every single day, even when they weren't on the road. And then when they stopped doing that, some rust started showing, even on songs that they've been nailing for years and years and years. You know, and then the rust comes off pretty fast. And now they have it so dialed in, they can they can unrust, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes into, into the first night of a tour. But at the time, the lights went down and they they gunned the whole damn thing right into what is a typically shreddy. 1997 Julius. And so there wasn't really rust there. And then cities is in the two spot and you know, it's a one, two punch. And that might be the highlight for me. Um, the cities, not because of the first set, not because of the version itself. It's not a version that I ever go back and listen to, but because of the song selection, you know, it was just enough of a rarity at that point to be, to be really exciting to see it. And then of course it's a talking heads cover which means out of the gate, they're establishing this New Year's run as kind of a commemoration of the breakthrough funky dance party year that they just had. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and I do think this set takes a little while to get moving, like you said. There, there's a little bit of a, and the, the cities is um is is pretty is welcomed for sure by the by the crowd, um, according to my listening, not not according and to the, me being there. The runaway gym is probably the 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 takeaway for improvisation and yeah. for re-listen. But even that, I mean, overall, the set st- kind of stands out as a, hey guys, we're back in it. You know, let's let's take off our coat and stay a while. <laughs> um, so there's a there's a really nice runaway gym, fifteen minutes. Um, Benji, as you mentioned, and Tom, they they play right after runaway gym. They play farmhouse. This was the third time played, and I, I don't think. I know that people have, have probably heard some of this before. I don't think we talked about this song, uh, the first two performances, which were in the fall 97 episodes, but do you have a story for us about Farmhouse? The creation story? I think everyone, well, at least everyone who listens to Under the Scales probably knows this, but um, basically uh, in 1996 at a farmhouse in Stovermont, Trey and I were going to have a writing session. Um, I literally walked in and Trey had been like, jamming and recording and i think karini was pressing record and paul was there and trey put a mic in my face and said sing and i i was like uh and i grabbed a note that was on the like a a a sticky note that was on the counter and pulled it off and just started reading those words that were on the note uh and i and i sang them to the uh no woman no cry uh tune because we'd been listening to that on the way there um and the words were from uh, the cleaning lady to make our stay better. It was like, uh, you know, welcome. This is a farmhouse, blah, blah, blah. Um, I added alas to her words. And then, of course, we wrote the whole rest of the song. But um, that was sort of the that was sort of the funny creation of it. The fact we'd been listening to Bob Marley and it basically is that song, but with the cleaning lady's words to open. Um, I should say, though, um, that on the way there, we did see the northern lights um in vermont we were in vermont and it was my first and only time i've ever seen them tom if you are talking farmhouse um i have so many questions uh can you keep it to one okay well let me just say uh that i love farmhouse it's it's a great song and like so many great fish songs it's obsessed within a particular show has more to do with where it's placed than with its appearance itself 
And that was definitely not a question. <laughs> well, okay. Here's my question. Um, <laughs> how did you know to call them cluster flies? <laughs> um, that was actually on the note. Um, you know, I'd never heard that either, but I guess they do kind of gather together in corners of windows uh, in a cluster. And uh, that's it. I'm holding you to one question. Um, it might be a great time to take a break. And uh, we will be right back with some December 28th, 1997, set to highlights and discussion. Hey listeners, I want to tell you about one of our great partners, DistroKid. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. If you're a musician and looking to get your music out there, DistroKid is the way to go. DistroKid is available for iOS and Android and is now available in Apple's App Store and the Google Play Store. More than a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music onto Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all other major streaming services. And with DistroKid, you can upload new releases, see your financial progress, get notified when you've earned royalties, withdraw money from the app, view and share links, check your streaming stats, and a whole lot more. DistroKid has more features than any other music distributor. Check them out today. Go to distrokid.com, that's distrokid with a capital K, dot com slash VIP slash undermine for a special offer only for our listeners. That's distrokid, capital K, dot com slash VIP slash undermine. Thanks, distrokid. Ready for a head-bangingly good time? Dive into the world of heavy metal with the Brutally Delicious podcast. Here, we don't just talk music. We welcome you into our heavy metal family. Join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars. We go beyond the typical interviews, exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal. So whether you're a diehard metalhead or just curious, join our family and let the headbanging begin with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. We are back. I mean, we were already back at the top of this episode, but now we're back again. And I'm here with RJ and Benji, who are going to tell us the next order of business. Set break is over. Set break is over. Um, so, <laughs> Benji, I mentioned this earlier. Um, there's this is a it's a weird show, but in a in a really good way. The set two has a lot of re-listen ability, if that's a word. It isn't. If it isn't, it is now. Um, even like the Axilla has this, you know, extended outro that you would that you you would hear in 2021 but um you hear it here in the simple and the ghost and the drowned cinnamon mule is really crazy the haley's is great the, the whole thing i think this is probably more of a like a set to listen or a set to tape that i would put in my 1988 honda accord when i when i would drive around but we should we should talk about set two because there's there's a lot going on here there is a lot going on, and I think it this show gets overlooked a lot. I think possibly because it is a little bit weird how they did three nights at MSG, and and but the first night was down in Landover. We got to talk about this, and I think possibly the reason being is that the Rangers were playing MSG that night. I mean, I don't know that if the Ranger if if the room was open, I don't you know I I mean who's to say a fish was gonna go for a four nights there? That was bold. They had only do, ever done two nights there before, so maybe that was also the thinking. We did three nights, and it had been a while since they did a New Year's show, a New Year's run show down in the for the Washington D.C. Baltimore market. Um, before that, they did one in '93. And then '94, '95 was you know it's it's Philly, Boston, New York, and then I think tomorrow night. 
for for the listeners that are listening to this chronologically, tomorrow night, the first night of MSG is really arguably when they kind of just made MSG their home for for the New Year's runs because then it was the first three nights there, and then after that, it was it was you know it was if it wasn't at MSG, it was in Miami or or Florida, but overall MSG was the, is the it wasn't is their home, um, especially for the holidays. But I think that the second set, I don't know, RJ, you mentioned the, the banter earlier, and I think that the banter plays into it. And it might be the reason why, in my mind, I haven't gone back to listen to this a lot, because it almost is like an apologetic, uh, something's going wrong here. And then when you do listen back, it's just an amazing overlooked second set. Do you want to maybe explain what the banter was all about? Sure, yeah. I mean, I guess um, the the first thing I have to say is it's. I think it's good that they weren't playing at MSG that night because the Rangers beat the Bruins four to three, including a goal by Wayne Gretzky, who who did play for the Rangers, um, which is which is an interesting wow. thing that wow. I will tell you as not a Rangers fan at all, or even a <laughs> hockey fan for that matter. Um, so I do think Trey was, you know, throughout the 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 kind of like ambient end of Axilla, I think there was a um I think there was a little bit of like feedback, you know, that added to the the you know, trippiness of it. And I don't think anyone was complaining about it, but I think then they, they go into simple and the, the simple is, is, has a nice, like nice jam in it. And it, I think the feedback keeps kind of coming back. And it's interesting because there's like a pages on the clavinet on simple. It's it definitely like they're getting back into that, that fall 97 sound pretty quickly. And then Trey is, you know, starts to, try to go into ghost and and then then you can really hear the feedback because they're not playing and i think he was like you know verbally just like playing with the the idea because they're about to go into ghost so he starts saying there's that feedback again and you know it's the, the ghost in the machine and um he sounds really like just i mean it, it's just it's just a very strange couple minutes of banter you know I, I <laughs> it think, sounds I think kind of a... out of it but but also like he knows what he's talking about and then he says he doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about yeah at the um, end he says i says I, I don't know what the fuck i'm talking about and then that, that gets the biggest cheer but uh but no i it, it was a strange feedback because i think it was instrument created most feedback that you hear is mike and uh, Paul, by then, obviously knew, and they all knew what that was. That's one of those that immediately turns into a sharp peak. And they, it's very easy to turn that mic down or do something, equalize it in some way to not have that happen. This was like a weird, subtle one that was a note inside Trey's machinery. So he kept calling it the ghost in the machine. And I, I, I think he wanted us to think that ghost came out because he said ghost. Do you think it was planned? You kind of you kind of implied RJ that it was planned that they were going to play it. I think he started playing the first chord uh, like he, a little bit. And, but then there's also Ghost in the Machine is is an album by the Police and yeah. Yeah. you know who knows like if if but it it it's it's so fun. It's a couple minutes, but I just I I love it. I love listening to it. Um yeah. it's very like he, it's it's very it's very fun. He calls out Ghost. You can hear it if you if you listen carefully off mic. He calls out Ghost to to the band. And then, then the feedback starts happening by itself, uh. and, and you can hear the feedback kind of swell up. And so, and as Trey mentions, you know, it's it's one of those moments where I feel like if it was another band or another artist, another human being, they might be really pissed off and yell off mic at their at the monitor guy or be like, "What the <laughs> fuck is?" You know, but Trey handles it like like you know, like just like Trey and just like uh, the guys from Fish tend to handle these things with a sense of humor. 
And then, he, of course, he says that this might be what the what the song is really about. Tom, um, I always thought the song was about, uh, I don't know, like the, the next season of Undermine. <laughs> Ghost. <laughs> what, uh, is, but, you know, Ghost in the Machine is definitely not what this song is about. Um, I think it becomes whatever it wants to be about that night. And to that, this night, I think it was definitely about the ghost in the machine. Well, there you go. It, and, but it, it's a, it's a phenomenal ghost. I mean, it is, uh, it gets into 94, 95 territory. Uh, like, um, uh, and I, I wrote down the, the times because I knew that I'd forget and I wouldn't know what the fuck I'm talking about. So, <laughs> so 12 minutes into it, it's, it's just like 94, 95 territory, which is kind of unusual for ghosts, but it's also not because of it's like the Radio City Music Hall ghost is reminiscent of that, where there are these peak jams where they ghost, of course, is such a 97 tune. It is such a funk tune. It is meant to have this like amazing groove to it. And yet sometimes it, within that groove, Trey finds a way to still peak and still play a lot of notes and have this cascading and intensifying, you know, sound. And and yet at the same time, if you're dancing to it, you're, you're you're holding steady with this with this funk beat. The other thing I want to say about this ghost that never gets said, and I hope it's not the ghost in my head that is telling me this, but about ten minutes into it, I swear there's a partial Terrapin station tease, um, just by Trey, and it's just this part of the melody. If you go and listen to it about ten minutes in, you will hear what I'm saying, and if not, well then. Like Trey, at least I'm in good company with, amongst those people that don't know what the fuck they're talking about. <laughs> this it is, it, Fishman, like, you know, as, as usual, just keeps the tempo so fast in this ghost. It just keeps it keeps going and going. And, you know, it's not it's not, you know, super long, but um, it's and then they, I think there's a little bit of a ripcord thing with the drown, but but it doesn't feel like it still kind of flows fine. It doesn't feel like they're really forcing another song, but um, you know, that ghost could have gone on for, for a lot longer. And then um, that drowned, it gets into very summer 95 territory. And then it gets to be a little bit like they're about to do an ambient space jam within it, which they don't ever fully commit to. And I wonder if some of that was maybe the tech issues with the feedback and they were you know, just with the Attila. I, I feel like that the the end of that kind of you know they're kind of playing with it to make a virtue out of necessity. I don't know, RJ. What do you think of that drowned? That is interesting. Um, maybe, yeah. I mean, I, I, I say yes. It <laughs> <laughs> seems as good an explanation as any because I I had not thought about that before. I mean, there's still you know if you look at this the second set, there's you know many. 12 to 15 minute jam. So it's not like they're, you know, it's not like they landed on a, a centerpiece for the the set. Right. So it's like even the, the scent of a mule, which I is, is probably my least favorite fish song um, is, is kind of interesting with the roundabout, you know, they, they, it seems like they don't really know where they want to go, but um, I do think by the time they get into Haley's Comet, that's again, like really high energy, really, really high tempo and into a really nice slave. Um, so yeah, this, you know, I don't know. I don't really know how to describe this second set because it does feel a little bit disjointed, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's a fun listen all the way through. It's a, I describe it's a it as, fun listen the whole way through. Yeah. Fun listen. They're settling in for a four night run. It's definitely first night jitters, I guess, if, if you could call it that. Well, um, and, and yeah, Haley's to me is kind of the highlight I, w I would say. 
Tom, I'm glad you said that because Haley's was was great and under and you know no one ever talks about this Haley's, and everyone talks about about another Fall 97 Haley's and that was the the one in Hampton, and I believe I'm not looking this up and so Twitter will will crucify me if I'm wrong, but it's been a few months uh, since we visited uh, 97, but I feel like this was the first Haley's since that Hampton one and at 12 minutes long. It, it's longer than the typical Haley's is now, and they definitely, you know, get into some really interesting territory with it, and also very squarely ninety-seven. Um, I just want to give a shout out to Bold as Love Encore here, which is just, you know, that um, I really wish that would come back. Um, I think they, you know, they play it sporadically these days, but it should come back. It's such a great cover, and um, that, that's all. I love it when they when they cover with these big classic rock tunes. You know, not to get ahead of ourselves, but the, the tomorrow night, the next night uh, at MSG, they they uh, they encore with Led Zeppelin, and you know, and of course you have like the encores like Day in a Life. These ginormous monsters of rock as the encore after Fish just destroys America and destroys the audience with their own original, highly original, unique sound, and then all of a sudden they come out and they're like, oh yeah, and Hendrix. That's our encore. <laughs> you know, that's the exclamation mark. And so I, I really lo- I, I love it when they do that. And I think it's very effective. Arena right rock, man. Right there with you. Yep. So, okay, before we wrap up, Tom, did you jump on the bus here? Ah, yeah, you have a good memory. Yes, uh, I think I told you that trip probably. Um, uh, we're, we do have to wrap. So I'm going to try to keep this really short, but it's a really kind of awesome story. What happens when we get to New York, but basically uh, Tebow, my wingman, fish wingman and I drove down together and, and I felt bad because I ditched him and took the bus with, uh, with the band back to New York and they left right after the show. Well, we partied for a while and the bus was always fun. And back then, if you were on the bus and the band checked into a new city, you would also get a hotel room right with the band. It would be treated like family. And by this point, their hotels were getting nicer and nicer, like four seasons and up nice. And up. So like five seasons nice. Uh, yeah. Benji, what, what's the fifth season called? Quick. Uh, <laughs> it's called so, Seasons Greetings. <laughs> All right. Very good. Yeah. So uh, I I was expecting a party on the bus, but it was only the first night of the run and they were acting sensibly for once. So like very soon, like Mike, Trey, Paige, uh, Paluska were in their bunks. Uh, Oh, and Sue and Eliza, Trey's uh, wife and daughter, they were in the way back lounge. And so it was like fish, me and Brad, we're having some beers and laughs and then they crashed too. And I realized I was too amped to sleep. So I grabbed the uh, jump seat up front next to the driver, the legendary driver. Ever Dom and driving into New York City at night is kind of awesome, but especially at 3 a.m. in a 20 ton tour bus with the world's best driver, an empty highway, and a head full of happy chemicals. And we pulled into the Riga Royale on 54th, and that's an amazing uh, boutique hotel that's no longer there, unfortunately. But we were right behind another guest also checking in at this late hour, probably like I said, 3 a.m. Um, and I'm a car guy, so I was already looking at the Rolls Royce, but also that um, inside you could see on the back of the front seat headrest were little screens for the passengers to watch. And it was the first time I'd ever seen that. They're common now. But I was looking at that and then Mike Tyson got out of the car. <laughs> and I was like, what the fuck? And uh, Dom, a boxing fan, but never one to care at all about celebrity became visibly excited like like a little boy. And he slid open his little 
bus window and he put his head out and he yelled, hello, champ. And Tyson waved as he walked into the hotel. And then Dom yelled something to the bus occupants. And suddenly there was more buzz about Mike Tyson than I'd ever seen by the band for any celebrity. And I'm talking like Neil Young, <laughs> Santana, BB King, any anyone, you name it. And uh, suddenly we were like, I know we're out of time, uh, but basically we all went into the lobby and we all said hi to Mike Tyson and Trey, I remember said something like, uh, we played the spectrum right after your last fight. And, and Mike's answer was, are you the red hot chili peppers? <laughs> <laughs> and I loved it, but, uh, I didn't care much about Mike Tyson. Honestly. Uh, I don't think he was even champ anymore. I don't, I don't think in 97, but, um, Trey had a, a huge regret. And that it was that he didn't give Eliza to him and then take a picture. And that's, I think, his biggest regret as a dad to this day. <laughs> um, guys, I'm going to call it. We did go way over. So I'm going to I'm going to let that do it for us today. But guess what? We will be back tomorrow to talk about tomorrow night's show, which is actually a show from 30 years and three months ago. 12, 29, 97 from the Big Apple. And Undermine is brought to you by Osiris Media. Executive producers are Tom Marshall, RJB, and Benji Eisen. Edited by Eric Limarenko. Mixed and mastered by Matt Dwyer. Production assistance from Nick Sejas. Original music by Amar Sastry. Art by Mark Dowd. Osiris. Ready for a head-bangingly good time? dive into the world of heavy metal with the Brutally Delicious podcast. Here, we don't just talk music. We welcome you into our heavy metal family. Join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars. We go beyond the typical interviews, exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal. So whether you're a diehard metalhead or just curious, join our family and let the headbanging begin with the Brutally Delicious podcast. <laughs> Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. <laughs>